This episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Aquarius Home Services and the Minnesota DNR's Minnesota Moms Fishing Challenge. Minnesota's fishing opener is almost here and so is Mother's Day. Did you know that moms can fish for free in Minnesota without a fishing license on Mother's Day weekend? Yes, it's true. So get your moms, any mom on the water this year. And this weekend, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources has teamed up with the Student Anglers Organization to celebrate both moms and fishing with an event called Minnesota Moms Fishing Challenge. It's a free virtual fishing challenge that runs all day Saturday and Sunday, May 13th and 14th. To enter, all you have to do is be a mom, go fishing somewhere in Minnesota, catch a fish, any fish, any species, any size, take a photo of you with your fish and post it on the Minnesota Moms Fishing Challenge Facebook page. That's the Minnesota Moms Fishing Challenge Facebook page. All participants who submit a fish will be entered in a random drawing for prizes provided by the Student Anglers Organization, including Shields gift cards and Onyx inflatable life jackets. Let's find out if Minnesota moms have what it takes to catch 10,000 fish in the land of 10,000 lakes. Invite your mom to join in on the fun. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. I'm Natalie Dillon, one of your hosts, joined by our other host... Do you like how I call you the other host, Travis Frank? Not the better half. It's, it's where you are today. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, today's an exciting episode. We are joined by John Hoyer, a elite multi-species angler, both on the PMTT, National Walleye Tour, and many other accolades. I know to your name. I have to ask, you are a busy guy all over the place. How did we get so lucky to have you here in studio today? Uh, I think with the wonderful world of a uh, calendar on my phone and uh, yes. you threw out like a date. And I looked and I was like, this must be meant to be because there's, <laughs> there's two days right there. I mean, pick a day. That's awesome. Yeah. We're lucky to have you. John, where, you. where are you off to later today? Uh, Lake Winnebago, our second national walleye tour stop. Gotcha. Where was the first tour stop? That was at Spring Valley, Illinois. Okay. Which, um, well, you said we're kind of live, but not live. I would not recommend going there. Really? Yeah. It didn't, it was not a fun place to fish. <laughs> not in March. Well, no. <laughs> see, but that's the beauty of the tournament fishing world. It forces you into places and t- forces you to catch fish when you may not be targeting them or when the conditions are tough, which makes you ultimately a lot better angler, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the beauty of it is it's still a competition. You could catch one fish that weighed one pound and if everyone else zeroed, you'd win. So, mm-hmm. um, I was saying that jokingly, but, you know, inevitably when you add all those factors into a March tournament, there is going to be a quarter or half the field that, you know, doesn't even own the right clothing or they're just going to take themselves out of it mentally. And it's a fun game to play at camp where it's just like, oh, you guys see the weather for tomorrow? Yeah. High at 29, 15 to 20 out of the Northwest. Perfect walleye weather. Let's go. Nice chop. It reminds me of our days of musky fishing years and years ago. I know you fished in some of the tournaments too, but there were tournaments where it paid out 10 places and there'd be a hundred boats out there fishing. And I remember on Mille Lacs and the weather was tough and they wouldn't even give out 10 places because there wasn't 10 muskies caught to be awarded the trophy, you know? And so it, it, uh, really, really forces you into, um, trying to think like a fish and trying to outsmart them when the conditions are just brutal, but you rarely see that in the walleye side of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you're definitely going to have 25 places pay, obviously there's a lot more muskies, but in the same light for sure. I mean, those scenarios are what get people so excited about tournament fishing because Mm -hmm. it's just, it's the unknown. You're excited after practice. You can go in, you have a chance to win maybe in your mind. And then like, how does it shake out? And it's, it's different every day, every hour. And that's, you know, why I get goosebumps talking about tournaments. Well, there's a lot of goosebumps right now because fishing opener is about to mm-hmm. kick in here in Minnesota. It just opened up in Wisconsin. I know we have listeners around the Midwest here, so it's not just Minnesota. But for us here in the land of 10,000 lakes, we're celebrating a very important holiday this weekend. And you have obviously an incredible wealth of knowledge. So Natalie, we're going to dig into the start of fishing season today. And I'm glad that John has been able to come in. Yeah, today. absolutely. And I was going to ask, you know, as Travis mentioned, a lot of our listeners are going to be, you know, 
from many places, but in the Minnesota area. And regardless of where they're from, many haven't been out yet this year like you have. So for those listening at home, both that are like eager and maybe a little envious that you've already been fishing this year, um, but also in what you saw, you know, last month or a couple weeks ago when you were out, what can people this year who are getting ready to start fishing here in the next couple of weeks, um, what have you seen, even though, you know, it might be in a different part of the country um, that, you know, you can share with us to, to tell people what they can expect at the beginning of the season here? Yeah, for sure. So this year is kind of unique. You know, the, if I look at the last five years, it kind of falls right in line with, um, you know, really weird and random weather. Mm -hmm. And it all plays a part, you know, into the big picture of what a Minnesota opener is going to look like. So, you know, when I started at Spring Valley, it was cold. Fish hadn't spawned yet. Um, I went to Lake Erie after that on a kind of a fun trip. Those fish hadn't spawned yet. You know, these are terms that you've heard before because you're a walleye fisherman, but generally in Minnesota, we don't get to fish when, uh, walleyes are spawning. They're protected that time. But, uh, after that green Bay, same thing. Uh, that was that week where we had all that 80 degree weather all mm -hmm. of a sudden, those fish were so confused. None of them had spawned. It was 38 degree water. By the time I left, uh, it was reading 50 degrees and almost overnight, all the big ones spawned. So uh, no matter what happens, you know, we were cold right up to about a week ago. Now we have this beautiful mm -hmm. spring weather. And so when I look at an opener like this, it brings back so many memories of catching limits of walleyes quickly on opener, uh, you know, having a fish fry and all that is because of the fact that those fish are all still going to be really shallow. Um, I believe that a lot of the fish will have spawned, you know, all the way up even to Lake of the Woods, but uh, the beauty of it is a lot of the males kind of hang out in those shallow areas where they were spawning and they're kind of waiting for, you know, maybe some leftover females to come in. And so they're going to be there and they're going to be there for the catching. It's so funny that you mentioned all this because I think when we first scheduled you just like a week or two ago, Travis and I were talking like it's been this crazy cold spring. We can get your perspective on what the fish are going to be doing in this, you know, crazy cold weather. And it, like you said, literally almost overnight, we've we've popped here. So right. <laughs> it should, it looks like that kind of more spring weather will stay with us. Um, and you know, there's there right some years on Minnesota's opener that I remember snow, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was always just the coldest, nastiest spring day on the opener. And my grandpa said, well, that's God's way of protecting the fish. You know, there's 500,000 people fishing on Saturday or maybe even more. I don't know the exact number, but I know the DNR uses that Minnesota DNR uses that number a lot. Because it's a it's a holiday in our state, and historically, it's a nasty day to fish. Yeah, but, but the the forecast. I mean, I know we're several days out, so it's likely going to change. But stable seventy degree weather in the Midwest here every day this week, which I think after the cool spring, and I know there are some lakes in northern Minnesota that still have ice. I think the ice is going to go out here in the next day or two or three. I know, John. What do you think? Lake of the Woods still has ice on it, right? Yeah, I think the main lake does for sure. Yeah. Um, obviously, the Canadian part of it's, you know, where all the islands are, that's mm -hmm. open now. Um, but yeah, I would say with that weather and just one good wind event, it should you know, push it all to the side. Yeah. And there's this, like, this window where people can really struggle when that ice goes out that first couple of days. It's almost like you need a little bit of stability after the fact before things really get going. But I'm excited for this spring because traditionally, Cool spring water temps mean shallow fish, active fish, excellent fishing. Right. Yeah. So, John, maybe it's too broad of a question for you to really answer, but I'd be curious, and I think a lot of our listeners would be too, when it's your first day getting out for the season, let's say you're walleye fishing first time of the season, can you kind of walk us through, like, what what's your game plan? What's your process for getting out and trying to, you know, pattern fish? Day one. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I've learned kind of later in my fishing career is the importance of water temp. So um, re regardless of what the number is, the second my boat goes in the water, I'm looking at the water temp. And I even go as far as making that, I have Lowrance graphs and you can change the size of, you know, the number of water temp. In the spring, I have that as big as depth. Um, so it sounds kind of random, but the reason why that's as big as depth is because it's actually more important than the actual depth of the water. So the second I put my boat in, let's say I put my boat in um, at the casino on Lake Mille Lacs. I put it in right away. I'm, that thing's maybe warming up. Maybe it's cooling down and it settles in at 42 degrees. So that day, 
throughout the, the entire day where I'm fishing, I'm always looking at that number. And the, the number doesn't mean anything, but when walleyes and any fish are in the spring, they gravitate to any type of little warm water area, slick. You know, that's why the north end of Mille Lacs is so good. That's why the north end of lakes are so good in the spring um, because they warm up a little bit. But if you watch that number throughout the day and you can find spots where it's just a couple degrees warmer, those are the spots where I'll slow down, I'll look way harder with my electronics, and I'm going to assume that that's where I'm going to catch, you know, fish that are the most active. So that would be number one for me, definitely. What, talking about technology and, and the changes, I mean, obviously there's incredible advancements in technology, but I think this time of the year um, you, can, you can catch a lot of fish without the electronics. Sometimes it's as simple as using your eyes. I tell people all the time, I'm like, Go up in the front of the boat with your trolling motor, put your fishing pole down for just an hour or two and just drive along and you'll see a lot because the water's still cold. It's pretty clear. A lot of times uh, the summer colors haven't really kicked in. You're going to see things in the water, whether it's bait fish or, you know, the first green weeds that are growing. You might even see the walleyes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times you can if you, if you look for them, polarized glasses, but it doesn't necessarily require all of this technology when you go out onto some of these big lakes and you know where you're going to be fishing this week will you get up and actually look with your eyes at anything are you staring at the graph uh yeah i find myself staring at the graph but the second i can see bottom mm -hmm. i'm literally uh i mean i get like add a little bit where it's just oh my gosh, like, why am I looking at my graph? I can see everything right <laughs> yeah. here. But what totally. you're talking about is so key. And one thing I'll add to that, especially in the spring, I've done it on Leech Lake in two feet of water. Same thing, like, let's drive around on 10 with the trolling motor. Uh, you said put the rod down. Walleyes, they don't know what boats are. And they are the friendliest thing, especially if you were happen to have a dozen spot tail shiners, yeah. let's just say. So I remember the first time with my friend Jeff Anderson, we're driving along Pelican Island in two feet. And we're like, whoa, there's a, there's a 20, that might be an over. That's a 26 incher. And it yeah. scoots off and we're like, oh, we spooked it. Spook another one, spook another one. Then finally I'm like, I just put a, a shiner on and we spook the thing and it goes that way. I just throw a long cast that way. And it literally. Turninate it like a muskie. It literally comes back like a golden, like a Labrador <laughs> and a bird. And it like literally turns around. I watch it follow my jig and it eats it right at our feet in two feet of water. So as you're driving, as you're looking, a beautiful things happening. You're taking fish that are probably in complete negative fins tuck laying on the bottom and you spook them up. Again, they have no idea what a boat is, but now they're all of a sudden agitated. Those fish will bite instantly. So, um, That's that'd be the only thing I'd change there. Just start, you see 10 of them swim off that way. Just throw a cast over there. Yeah. And you see these schools of walleyes yeah. up in the shallow water. And I think a lot of times what happens this time of the year, um, some of the lakes that I fish that I fish really shallow like that two to five feet is pretty much my depth. And, you know, I'm catching fish and people are like, what's going on? What is he doing? Well, they come over and they drive right over the top of them. And then they mm -hmm. drop their jig straight down along the side. They're vertically jigging. I'm like, you just scared all your fish away. I'll move on and go to the next school. But boat control becomes so critical this time of the year because once your boat goes over the top of them, they're not standing up watching where that school went to yep. pitch at them. They don't even know that they they scared all the fish away. And then they're like, ah, they're not biting today. Should have come back. I'm like, oh, they're biting. They're biting. You just didn't know it because you drove over the top of those fish. So I think it's important a lot of times. I tell people, be mindful of how you approach a spot. If you think there's going to be fish on this, you know, sometimes shallow flat areas are great this time of the year after the spawn. And if you can see them, approach it. I approach it downwind so that I can stop the uh, trolling motor without turning the boat and let it just push me back away from the fish. And then I spot lock, you know, a half a cast away from them and cast up there. That's just a technique that I use. Do you have any techniques that you think are important for people to consider fishing walleyes in shallow water? Yeah. Um, so I talked about a jig and a shiner. I mean, it's tough to beat on opener, a jig yeah. and a shiner and they're super expensive. So well, if it is a jig and a if shiner, you can even get them this year. Yeah, mm -hmm. true. So let's just say a jig and a plastic. Um, you know, there's a couple ways I like to do it. One of them, my primary way would be a, as light a jig as possible. So eighth ounce. Um, 
And a couple ways you can get your lure away from the boat would be if you're drifting, let's say there's one to two footers on Mille Lacs and you're up on the north end and you're fishing six to eight feet of water. Um, as your boat drifts, it looks like you're lindy rigging. It reminds you just, you know, like you said, sinker out the back, lindy rigging. But what I do is I'll, I'll sail a cast as far as I can at a quarter to that wind because I'm going to be able to make a longer cast, kind of quartering the wind, and then literally just work that bait without really reeling at all and let that bait kind of settle back into the center. So it's a classic thing. It works awesome on Leech Lake, especially with shiner minnows. But when you have two or three people in the boat, you're literally creating a combine effect where, you know, you're throwing out 60 feet to the side, the guy in the middle or the girl in the middle is throwing out two and you're, you're actually taking a sample from about 200 feet and you just keep doing that. You keep making the same cast. You'll feel it feels right. Just kind of, you know, snap your jig back to the boat and then cast again. So the, the beauty of that presentation is every single cast, as your bait comes back to center, as you're drifting, you're going to get an awesome turn to your bait. And like 80% of the That's bites... That's your trigger. Yeah, on a shiner minnow, on a plastic, happen as that bait planes out and comes to straight coming into the boat. So after that, I have about 30 seconds. I'll leave it straight behind the boat. And then it's like, nope, reel up again. Now I'm combing this next, you know, 50 foot section. So that's flat fishing 101. Uh, if it's so calm, you know, I'll put my trolling motor on one, 1. 1.2, and then we'll all just cast out, you know, a 45 degree angle out the sides of the boat. Bait comes to the back of the boat, leave it there for 30 seconds, do it again. So you can, you know, cover max water. Now, you talk about jigging the minnow. I mean, that is killer in shallow water this time of the year. What? At what points do you switch over to a crankbait? Is it a low light time period? Is it deeper water? Do you find that they're aggressive enough when their walleyes are up shallow to throw a crankbait midday? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the guy to say that you can go and catch as many fish on a crankbait on Oprah in Minnesota. It just doesn't work like that. I would love to, mm -hmm. but the reality of it is a lot of like the Dakotas and stuff, the water's a little dirtier. You know, you got some rock to hit off of. Um, anytime I can deflect off something with, you know, a shad wrap or a flicker shad, something that gets down there, yep. um, I have confidence in casting it. But in Minnesota, I would definitely need wind to do that. So, um, yeah, definitely... I always say walleyes don't bite in the morning, so I'm not the person to tell you if it works in the morning. But at sunset, you know, the gentleman's time of day, uh, for sure that's when I would switch to a crankbait. And they're going to outfish a jig and a minnow, you know, mm -hmm. especially when you get to actual first dark or whatever. Yep. I mean, they're going to out, you, you can't outfish a crankbait there, after dark. Yeah, there's some, there's a time period there where I, I notice the bite transitions, it starts to slow down on a jig and a minnow after sunset. And I'm like, all right. I've got a bunch of shad wraps. Yeah. Number five shad wrap is just dynamite. I mean, the flicker shad works too, but I've just got so much confidence in the shad wrap. I'm right. like, all right, everybody, we're switching over. And all of a sudden, it's just like the light switch goes on. And a crankbait then at night, in my opinion, will outfish live bait, like five to one, maybe yeah. more than that, because you're covering so much water. You know, some people like to put the lighted bobber out and let a leech swim around there. But that thing is sitting in a spot, and you have to wait for the fish. I want to go to the fish, you know. And I'm if I have three people casting a crankbait, if they cast out 80 feet and bring it back, I mean, you just think about all that area that you're covering when that is, is cruising along the shallow bottom there. Yeah, and you said flats. So, like, I'll go one step further. I'll say, you know, for myself, yeah, if I'm fishing a flat or a big tapered point, you know, with a ton of six feet or eight feet of water crankbait that's like fishing 101 yep but if i'm fishing this little rock pile on the end of my dock or a little rock pile on malax or something yep then it's like yeah i could probably catch more you know with a slip bobber out there yeah so, <sighs> something about watching that light disappear oh, I know. Too. oh gosh i'm excited right <laughs> now about this Nelly. um so uh, i want to ask shifting gears just a little bit but i think you're one of those kind of prime examples of somebody who's turned this passion and love of fishing as we can just like hear in your voice in this conversation i know that you you know grew up fishing, you've spent so much time on the water and you're one of those prime examples of people that turned that now into your career, both guiding and of course, in, on the competitive side. So talk to us a little bit for those listening about how you made the transition, even just from the tournament side to going in, you know, as a pro and making this your career. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I forget when I just talked about that. I've talked about that before, but mm -hmm. it's, it, I'll tell you the number one thing. It was taking a risk and a financial risk for myself. Um, I used to be a union carpenter, you know, and I think about that. I'm trying to talk my one friend out of quitting his 
union job right now. And it, it just revolves around the fact of like, there's my paycheck. I know my expenses. And how am I going to buy this boat that duh, doesn't fit into my expenses at all? You know, that's an extra $400 a month payment. Okay. I'm going to buy the boat. I'm going to get the loan and I, that'll force me to guide, you know, more to be able to pay for this. So that was my first big step in fishing. Uh, then I guided muskies alongside Travis at times, you know, and then lo and behold, I accomplished, I think number one, and that was to make fishing pay for itself just to cover all those expenses. Cause I want every rod and reel and I want five new musky baits a week. You know, those are, 20- we, we saw the pictures you were posting on Instagram. I think I saw maybe 40 rods on your yeah. Instagram stories yesterday. So that, that's a whole different story <laughs> now though. Those are, those are given to me by my friends, you know, at, at Fenwick. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at first I knew that like, I want to buy so much tackle and it doesn't make financial sense. I have a rent to pay, you know, I have a mortgage, I have bills. So that was the first one. And I think that's a good guideline for anyone who wants to do that. You got to make it pay for itself. So then the next step up for that is like actually being profitable. And sometime after being profitable, having additional money to spend would be the time where you'd start thinking about, can I make this a career? Um, So for myself, it was a combination of guiding while I was still a carpenter, then started fishing tournaments, uh, made some decent money. And then I got to the point where it's like, okay, I don't want to guide at all. I want to just fish tournaments and promote fishing. So that was another big jump for me to quit my full-time job, to realize that I could guide more than I wanted to if I had to, if this doesn't work out. And that was like my second biggest jump in fishing. So definitely leaps of faith for myself. But I think that that initial part is really the key if it's something that you want to get into. Mm-hmm. When I think it's so interesting, we've been talking, you know, mostly about walleye fishing today. That's what a lot of people out there are excited about right now. Um, but you, you know, really started on, on many different species, but you were more, you would have identified more as a musky fisher, fisherman than a walleye fisherman at first, right? And how did this like passion of, of walleyes come about for you? Yeah. Um, again, that was the first thing I made money in was musky mm-hmm. fishing. However, what people didn't know because I only guided for muskies was I fished for every fish all season long. You know, I, I would always say like, I would risk my life to catch a late ice bluegill. Literally. <laughs> I, that's the only yes. time I've ever fallen in. We do not in. condone that. Right. But Good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, that's the only time I've fallen in through the ice twice in my life, late, late ice, trying to catch a one pound bluegill. And then the second the ice melted, it's like, no, I don't want to catch a single bluegill in open water. I want to catch crappies. And I want to catch all the crappies and all the biggest crappies right up to walleye opener. Then I'm like, crappie season's over. Here we are, walleye season. And then, you know, later on in life, I guess I was 25 or 7, whatever, um, is when I experienced muskies and Natalie, you're mm-hmm. nodding. You know, well, Travis, <laughs> yeah. we all yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. back to the, your bluegill, though. I would, and I, I bet you a hundred bucks you'd agree with this. I would rather catch a one pound bluegill than a 50 inch muskie seven days a week because there's something <sighs> about it through the ice, Natalie. It, there's, it's the hunt is almost more intense Same. to find that. Yeah. I mean, I've been. Well, I've caught neither, so I guess I can't really. What? I know. Well, I've it, caught more 50 I'm, inch muskies than I've one caught, pound bluegill. I've caught so, several over oh, 49, I mean, never, never 50, but no, I don't, I've never caught an exciting bluegill, so. Yeah, but I can imagine. And that's something that I do think is so cool. I mean, about both of you, but um, I don't even know, John, if you remember this conversation, but a few years ago, we were chatting at the, it was a St. Paul ice fishing show. And I remember at the time I was solely a musky fisherman. I'm like, this is what I do. I was so proud of it. I was like the biggest and the best. And this is all I do. And I remember it's something that was actually kind of formative in my, in my fishing experience. You were explaining to me, you know, all the different species that you fished for, but I remember you really recommended that I start fishing for different species. We were talking about ice fishing at the time and I think like panfish, but you really painted the picture for me of how experiencing the chase of different species and learning the different skills and the tactics in one species can really transfer into everything else. And what you said is like, if you get really good at, uh, you know, ice fishing for panfish, that'll actually help your musky fishing and your figure eights and stuff. And, and it was kind of at that moment for me that I was like, oh, 
okay, well, if John Hoyer says it, then maybe <laughs> I'll try to fish her some other species. And it definitely set me off on an adventure of, of trying to learn as much as I could about, you know, the various fish that we have around here. And I can say that it, you know, it definitely helped me um, in my abilities. And, you know, for you, I guess, how much does your experience fishing for everything that we have around here, how much does it like build on itself and help you become a better angler? For example, you know, when you're fishing walleyes in a tournament. Yeah, it's, it's everything. Um, originally I thought I'd wasted 15 years of my life musky fishing. Once I got on the competitive side of walleye fishing. So what I was saying was, you know, a, my body is probably 10 years aged more than it should be, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. right. Like my joints and everything. But B, if I would have spent that amount of time, that amount of time is an extreme amount of time. It was every day after work, every day. I had a season where I swear I missed five days of the entire musky season. Five. Wow. If I would have been bass fishing that much, I would be on the elite series right now. Period. (laughs) I I I believe it. I mean, right? Like I'm not taking away anyone from the elite series, but that amount of time is a simple, you know, 10,000 hour rule. You're going to be ahead of... 99.9% 99.9% of people, if you were ever that fanatical about fishing, you know? So, um, but back to your point, after having these successes in the walleye world, I realize how much I learned from muskies, which are the very top of the food chain. They're the pickiest eaters. They're the cockiest fish in the lake. They eat when they want. And to go down a level from that to probably second in command being a big walleye, there's a lot of things that correlate there. And if you go all the way back down to what we talked about that one day, down to a crappie getting lower and lower on the food chain, it's simple. They all eat minnows. They all eat stuff that flees, that gets away. There isn't easy meals. They don't get to pluck a minnow off the bottom that's anchored by an eighth ounce jig every day. So that's what's really pushed myself mentally to just understand like, whoa, these walleyes are as cool as muskies. They will move as fast. They will bite as hard. I can use way bigger stuff that, you know, literally musky techniques. And the coolest part is I've actually won tournaments doing that. Like literally a musky technique against the best walleye anglers in in the nation or whatever. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think the best fishermen that I know, John, you're a prime example of this, are anglers that target everything. Because you really are forced to understand the whole ecosystem. Without understanding the whole ecosystem, you're only seeing just a fraction of what that fish you're targeting is going through. And I tell people all the time, go to a lake you've never fished before. Fish for something you've never never really been interested in catching. And it will force you to think differently. And it's going to help you when you come back to your home waters. And you've now traveled the whole country. But I think here in Minnesota, we have amazing anglers that are representing walleye fishing, bass fishing on the national scale. I mean, look at you, tournament angler of the year, Seth fighter, same deal in the bass side of it. And at times we're all fishing against each other for bass on Lake Minnetonka, you know, (laughs) like it's just think about how much talent has come out of this state in the fishing side of it. What do you see from anglers in different parts of the country, do they have the same knowledge about all the different fish species that we have here? Or are we, are we breeding ex- excellent <laughs> anglers up here? Yeah. Um, I guess I haven't thought of it that way. And I mean, until you said that, um, it's kind of funny. Like I don't look in the mirror and be like, you are great rounded angler, John. <laughs> All right, Here let's switch to You'll walleye. You'll start tomorrow. We got a walleye tournament coming up. We're going to go walleye <laughs> No, um, but you're right. Uh, Minnesota has a bunch of diverse fisheries, and now they're getting very pressured. So, like, that really makes people better. Um, what was your question? How do, you, how do Midwest anglers... Um, differ or okay. excel in competition against people from around the country? Because you fish against anglers from literally all over the country. Yeah, so I think the number one thing is when it comes to a Minnesota angler and casting, we only can use one rod. So do I want to lay my flicker minnow out back there in the summertime on Lake Mille Lacs and Natalie and Travis and I have our three rods out there and we're going to troll? You know, no, it, Inevitably, you're going to end up using a spinning rod, jigging a single presentation more often. Well, uh, 
you know, with the advancement of forward-facing sonar, we're way ahead of other walleye anglers that grew up being good at trolling, which I, I think is a, um, another word for boring personally, but I grew up in (laughs) Minnesota, you know, one rod, why would we troll? You know, there's times, but, um, so my competition comes from pretty specific regions. You know, the epicenter is probably Green Bay, Winnebago. Well, they can use three rods per person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guarantee you 95% of people that went out with their dad when they were young on Green Bay or Winnebago, I mean, we're putting out nine rods. Mm -hmm. We're going to bring your mom with your sister. (laughs) You know, if we, if we're good enough, we can get out 12 rods. And, um, that's like inevitably those people are going to grow up trolling where I don't want to say some of my competition would be holding their spinning reel upside down, but I've watched guys on the great lakes when the casting thing started where I'm like, Whoa, that looks so awkward. I don't even know if he knows what hand he's supposed to be reeling. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, so that was one of my first uh, really big confidence boost was this casting bite on Green Bay. And I drove around. I saw these like guys that have made their career trolling on the Great Lakes. I won't mention any names, but I saw them casting. And I was literally like, you know what, John? I did have a self-talk. It wasn't in the mirror. (laughs) But I was like, you know what, John? You've been casting structure for muskies for like the last 15 years of your life. Now I'm pinpointing little boulder spots on the edge of the small little hump. And if the wind blows this way, I caught two big walleyes right there relating to the current that's rolling around. And I kind of like drove through all these boats. I'm like, those those guys are all trying casting because the last term was one Mm -hmm. casting. You're good at this. And sure enough, I took seventh place. That was my second cash ever at the championship. And it was like, you know what? You are good at casting. You've casted a lot. And I think that's, <laughs> that's go, a lot of what Minnesota. Yeah. And I'm sure that with, with that too, the like boat management experience yeah. too probably comes into play. For sure. Um, so I'm curious for people that maybe are, you know, unlike you, they, you know, right now they're listening and they love to target one species. Let's say that they're walleye anglers and this is inspiring them to, okay, now I'm going to also start doing everything that we have, you know, in our lakes to offer. How would you I guess what, um, you know, advice would you give people who are trying to become really well-rounded multi-species anglers, even in just in terms of like time management and breaking down like the season and their time and, and when to focus on, on what? Um, okay. So that's kind of a two part thing. I, I agree. I mean, time is so valuable nowadays, families, friends, birthday parties, (laughs) you name it. Um, really, I guess if you did the same thing I did where, you know, make sure you go crappie fishing a couple of times. I haven't learned a ton from crappie fishing. I feel like I have it dialed into that adjust a bubble and that pink and white tube jig. Mm-hmm. I haven't changed much there, yep. but when it comes to other species, um, you know, do I recommend getting into musky fishing right now? Mm, you sh- yeah. Maybe if you have a lot of time on your hands or you maybe have a person who can get you into it, that'll help you become an angler. But on a side note, if you can go, if you want to get better at catching walleyes in way more fun ways or progress your angling ability overall, go to a lake like Lake Mille Lacs. I've learned tournament winning patterns, multiple tournament winning patterns on Lake Mille Lacs from their population of walleyes. And if you go out there and you are wired like I am, where if you, if something starts becoming predictable, um, I literally tune out right away. If I throw a jig and a shiner up there and we have our limit of 12 walleyes or whatever on Leech Lake, I'm already starting to tune out because we just caught 12 walleyes and 20 casts. So what I'm saying is use lakes like that or situations where you're catching them really good and then try something you saw on TV. Try a rip and wrap on Lake Mille Lacs this weekend. Your friends are all using shiners. You got, you're catching them at will. Shiners are expensive. Throw a rip and wrap out there to where you know there's fish throw a jig in a plastic, work it aggressively, try a heavier one, move it quicker. Um, and that's where I've literally learned everything. It's just from being that person where it's like, how many night, how many leech, how many leeches do I need to use and rigging a, a walleye on Lake Mille Lacs in the summer? Mm-hmm. I haven't done that for like four years. Will a wall, it's like, will a walleye bite this beautiful jumbo leech on my line right now? Yes. Okay, is it fun to reel them in? Yes, I understand that. I'm not trying to downplay fishing as a whole, but if you want to progress and get better and have more fun with artificials and stuff, that's the way you do it. And when you're on those kind of places, on those lakes where you can catch them in a variety of different ways, that's where you gain a lot of confidence. Yeah. You know, if I'm up on Lake of the Woods, I almost refuse to bring live bait with. For sure. Because I just, I know I can catch them 25 different ways today. And, you know, like... 
two years ago, I'm up there and, and the jig and rap is just, you know, lethal. It should almost be banned. It's more lethal than live bait sometimes. But I, you know, like these heavy hair jigs is VMC, like, uh, I think it's a bucktail jig and, you know, there's a bunch of different, uh, jigs similar to it. You don't need bait on it. It's just a jig with hair. But if you fish it the same way, I've found that it can be as lethal as a jigging wrap. You know, and everyone in the boat, they're like, what in the heck are you throwing? It's a one ounce. I mean, super heavy, but I'm chucking it a half a mile and I'm ripping it all the way back. And walleyes are just crushing it. Yeah. You know, and so then I know that I can catch walleyes on that. Now, when I come back to fish on Lake Minnetonka, hey, I'm going to throw this out because I know walleyes going to eat it if you fish it. So it just, it's to your point, John, that, you know, you can gain so much confidence by trying things when you know there's a whole bunch of walleyes that are hungry right there. Yeah. See what works. Right. You know, be experimenting on those opportunities at the same time. Um, how many years have you been fishing competitively now where this is a full-time life for you? I think this is year number six. Year number six. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, was it stressful when you took that leap the first year? Were you nervous about it? Or how did you finally have the backing or, you know, you talked to yourself in the mirror and said, John, I'm good enough. And gosh, darn it. People like me. Like, what did you say? This is, this is a reality for me. I remember I still haven't said that yet. I'm going to do it tomorrow morning though. I'm going to try it. Um, th- that was the year that, well, the first year I wanted to make the leap, like in reality, financially, I had no business owning a 620 Ranger, a $90,000 boat. I mean, it barely fits in my garage. That should have been the first hurdle or like, oh, maybe this is God telling me, you know, you got to buy a new house first before you do this. But I'm like, no, I could take those studs out of that back wall of my garage and we can figure this out. I ordered the boat before I even figured that out. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Yep. Um, but I will say one tip. You know, if people are on that verge or maybe they're already, you know, fishing some local tournaments and stuff, and they want to know my recipe for success. I just started using my phone. There was a time in my life there where I learned more on my phone than I did in my two glorious years of college, all through high school, just simply Googling stuff. Um, and the number one thing for myself was understanding the value of fleet advertising. So the value of that, that truck wrap, it's 10 times more valuable than my boat wrap because of the fact I live in a populated area. So, um, if, if I give one tip, if you Google that, you can go into a potential meeting with a non-endemic fishing sponsor or a fishing sponsor, and you can go in there and say, Hey, this truck's going to cost me $3,000 to wrap it. But here's the number of impressions I'm going to get when I put 40, 30,000 miles on it a year, driving around Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, how would you feel about paying for the wrap and giving me $10,000? So right there, $13,000 ask from any company. Some companies have millions of dollars in marketing budgets. And you're set right there. You have all your entry fees paid for just from one name on your truck. So that's what I did initially. Uh, I'll give a shout out to a company called Lim Lab in Rochester. They're a prosthetics company. That was my original primary sponsor. How does that even come about? Because I know mm-hmm. people that have gone to Lim Lab before to get... Um, amputations and legs and stuff. Yeah. So it was my friend that knew the company. They were looking, he came in as a, um, he was doing some consulting for him and he came in and they were looking for different ways to grow their brand basically. And I literally went to him with the exact stuff I was just talking about. And they're like, holy cow, you're going to have it on my truck and boat. And then the other key thing is that brand association. So right away I had zero brand association. I won co-angler of the year. And I've caught a bunch of muskies. That was all I had to offer, which there's nothing, but it's what, something, John. It wasn't in my mind. Like okay. it's not me walking into a meeting. I still haven't done it in my life, but I haven't walked in to be like, and you get to associate with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of it is I bought a brand new Chevy truck. So now if you put Joe Schmo electric on a brand new Chevy truck and somebody sees that driving down the road, they're going to be like, Whoa, Joe Schmo electric. Mm-hmm. If they go to look for an electrical company in the yellow pages or something, they're going to see Joe Schmo Electric. And human nature gives you that idea of success. So that's that brand association part. Now put Joe Schmo Electric on a brand new 620 Ranger boat with a 300 horse motor on it. And you drive that rig down the road and people are going to be like, Joe Schmo Electric? (laughs) Yes, I'm, I'm obviously calling them. So that's a two part little conversation. And that's all I had to offer. And LibLab put that faith in me. And from the get-go, I didn't have any money out of pocket to um, entry fees and travel. So zero stress. 
Yeah, a lot yeah. of people on the tour have <clears throat> a similar story because at some point, you know, the believing that you're going to outfish every other angler on the tour comes back to bite people, and then they say, "I don't have any left in the bank. I've got to, I got to quit the tour." So if you can come at it from the business side yeah. financially and know that even if you lose the tournament, you're still going to be okay, you know. And then when you cash those hundred thousand dollar checks. Um, you know, then it's when things start to really roll. Then it's like, how many people are we inviting to Sushi Fix for the party? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's it like being on stage holding that Happy Gilmore yeah. check? Mm-hmm. I call it Happy Gilmore Yeah, checks. that's yeah. so true. It's weird. It's awkward. Is it? Yeah. It's awesome, though. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> I always think of my mom and my dad and my family, and I, like, literally just, I mean, I try to take it in, but... Um, having my brother and sister-in-law at the championship last year. I mean, just being able to look at their faces. It, it's crazy how many people it makes happy, you know, beyond just my family members. So that's well, what I kind of... And all the people cheering for too. you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. When you know these big tournaments are going on, it's mm-hmm. like somebody local is... Is they're leading it after day two, and you're yeah. just like, yeah. I find myself checking in. I'm like, is John gonna do it? Is he gonna mm-hmm. do it? Is he gonna? He did it. You should have known. I'm like, you, I could have. You could have texted me and said, is it gonna happen? I'd be like, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you it got was fun. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sounded. Pretty, it was a very unique situation, but it was like, ah, uh, yeah. When you find those types of things, I remember walleye, or I remember musky fishing on Malax like 25 years ago for a tournament that we were pre-fishing for, and I found all the. 27 to 29 inch walleyes Malax had to offer in two feet of water in 110 degrees. It was unbelievable. Nice. But, you know, like you find things like that and you're like, I need to enter a walleye tournament right this second because <laughs> uh, something is different here. Yeah. When you found that pattern last year out there and you knew you were going to win, was it, was the pressure on at that point or did you just feel relaxed? No. Um, and a lot of that goes back to that financial thing. So like I I, for some, I, for some reason, I don't put any pressure on myself and it's, it's from confidence. You know, I realize that, okay, I've established myself in fishing while I fishing there. Everybody knows all my sponsor knows it's a roller coaster of finishes. Right. And I find myself always constantly going for that, you know, quote unquote home run type bite to win. Um, but going into the tournament, no, I'd never process it like that. I don't, I'm able to sleep now before day two. I didn't sleep that well before Erie because I was so excited because yeah. it was going to be flat, calm, and sunny. And we've mm-hmm. all fished the weeds for muskies when it's flat, calm, and sunny. That's where they live. That's where they're going to be no matter what. Mm-hmm. And um, that was like the only struggle I had was to try to contain the excitement, actually. Spring is here, and that means hot weather will soon be coming. Are you ready for the heat? I am. Is your home? That's the question. If you're like me and you like your home to stay comfy and cool all summer long, then I recommend talking to my friends at Aquarius Home Services. From AC tune-ups to repairs, Aquarius Home Services is here to help. Their trusted cooling and heating experts will go above and beyond to provide you with a five-star experience from start to finish to make sure your AC unit is ready for the heat. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. So I don't want to derail us too much, but this is kind of bringing up another topic that I think while you're here, it'd be fun to talk to you about, because I know it's something you value, I value, but kind of along these lines, both of entering the competitive tournament world, you've mentioned like being able to keep calm and stuff, and you also talked about earlier in the podcast the physical toll that fishing, you know, musky fishing, but really all, all kinds can take on the body. So I know you're somebody that likes to take care of your health. You value that. So what have you tried to do, especially now that you're, you know, you're traveling all the time fishing, you're spending so much time on the water. What do you do both for like your physical health and also that like mental health side of things to stay healthy when you're, you know, on the constant grind? Um, yeah, I've learned kind of again later in life how my body loves protein. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've always loved eating vegetables and stuff, but just kind of limiting my carb intake, um, especially in practice, I kind of eat like that no matter what, but man, if I knew that when I was 20, I don't think I would have missed those five days of that musky season. Um, you know, eating carbohydrates, junk food and stuff. It's just gas station. Ro- yeah. Pizza and, yeah. It's just mm-hmm. this roller coaster of hunger and, and whatever. I don't know the science behind it, but I know my body. And if I can keep things solid, um, I definitely fast till like one or two o'clock. And I just, all of a sudden, if I start, you know, falling over at two 30, I'm like, okay, I got to eat some protein, a couple hard boiled eggs, mm-hmm. some cheese, some nuts, boom, 
more water. Yep. All right. We're good all the way to sunset. And then like one big meal for dinner is good eating. It's, you know, rice, vegetables, venison, elk. Mm-hmm. Goose broth. Good stuff. Yeah. Oh, well. All and kinds it, of good stuff yeah, there. Yeah. 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 I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to. Even if you spend like one long day on the water, if you don't take care of yourself by the end of the day, it's like, you, you know, you feel like garbage. You're yeah. dehydrated, you're hungry, or, you know, blood sugar's all over the place. And I can only imagine how when it's day after day after day, you know, Travis, you've experienced this too, how being able to kind of get that stuff right, it might not jump out to a lot of people, but it can probably eventually be a difference maker in, uh, you know, in tournaments too. Who can yeah. kind of withhold that? For sure. And then the other thing is like a sleep cycle where, you know, there's a lot of practices, especially now this time of year, where we'll get in, we'll have dinner, whatever, and it's midnight, you know, mm-hmm. and we're waking up at six. So I'll do that for four or five days of, call it seven days of practice, you know, five hours, five and a half, six hours of sleep. And that's fine. I don't need to be at 100% in practice. But when I get close to the tournament, that's when I'm going to start coming in a little bit earlier, eating a little earlier, and then making sure I have like seven hours of sleep, you know, two days before, try to get seven hours, you know, prepare for that day before the tournament, try to get seven hours of sleep um, before the first day of the tournament. And that's where I feel like I'm at it, you know, peak mental Mm decision-making health, which is super important in tournament fishing. And I've learned that's number one thing, like probably not even close to the best angler on the tour, but if you can make clear, decisive, quick decisions it's and a buy yourself game. time, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's how people win tournaments. Tournament angling is a mental game. How long do you wait on this? You trust yourself. Do I need to? Do I need when to move on? When to dri- make that drive across the lake? Is it worth it to make that thirty mile run? Yeah. I mean, there's so many decisions mentally, but it's like it comes down to one bite a lot of times, and then making that happen. So staying sharp. I've seen so many times and. My tournament experience is just a tiny fraction of yours, John. And I find myself, you know, it's a mental game. And the, and you get back to the stage, everyone's got a story. Everyone was this close to yeah. winning it. You know, that's a funny mm-hmm. part. It's like, I had the one on. I would have won it. We again. lost it. We know, yeah, tournament ex- winning fish. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> um, speaking of these uh, tournaments, what are some of the trends you're seeing on the tour right now in the walleye side of it? Um, well, definitely forward-facing sonar. Mm-hmm. If your wonderful listeners haven't um, experienced the beauty of forward-facing sonar. It is very fun. And for uh, when we were talking about, you know, what separates Minnesota anglers, here's another one we didn't talk about. I fished a bass tournament in November, and it was, we were fishing 100 feet of water, and these spotted bass and largemouth were like 30 to 40 feet down in 100 feet of water. And my partner, Kyle Menke, and I started seeing a few different boats out in the middle of these creek arms, and we were sitting there at, and it's like, well, okay, we're not the only guys on this pattern. And I went into camp and I actually had my walleye friend, Jason Shakir, and his son, Jay Shakir, we were teaming with them. And they're like, yeah, we're not the only guys doing it. I looked at them, kind of cocky and funny, but I was like, if these southern rednecks want to have an ice fishing contest against Kyle and I and you guys, <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> they just got forward-facing sonar one or two years ago tops. And if they want to like pretend that they're just going to cast their jig out and every bass is going to bite it, I'm fine with that. You know, it's the truth of the matter though. Forward facing sonar is what we've been looking at on our Vexlars ice fishing for like 20 years. So if you were born in Minnesota and ice fish, mm-hmm. you're already going to understand forward facing sonar and have a lot of fun with it. That's the number one trend for sure, which then correlates to not trolling, having a lot more fun using that single rod and picking out specific fish. I really need a five pounder to help right now. That's all. If I had a five pounder, okay, I'm not even casting these two, three pounders. Where are you at? There you are, five pounder. Come on, mm-hmm. let's do this. Mm-hmm. And that's for myself. That's the trend. But you see it more and more. Everybody has the transducers and uh, they're having lots of fun. So, John, we posted on Instagram the other day asking our listeners for questions for you. And we got a lot of responses. I think we can get through a couple of them here. Um, But one listener asked, so this person doesn't have a boat and he asked where in Minnesota can you realistically go to catch some walleye without one or for people anywhere who don't have boats, but want to try to walleye fish, what would you tell them? Um, Best time of year to do that. Favorite fishing memories ever on opener starting at 1201 uh, AM. All you need is a number 11 floating Rapala or a number 11 Berkeley hit stick a pair of waders and a simple spinning rod. And if you, especially with the amount of water we have moving through the whole state right now, any culvert, 
any neck down between lakes, any little culvert. If there was like an inch of rain the night before opener, we would be just, oh my gosh, we'd be licking our chops. But it is the funnest bite of the year. There will be walleyes in every single one of those current areas on any lake with walleyes. So simply any current area right offshore, or if you can get it, you know, further in, in waders, it helps. And you just cast wherever you see that inflowing water. It's great advice. Yep. Hope it helps. Um, well, next, Michael Pratt asked, with the increased number in people fishing, walleye fishing, do you see a need to change the numbers of limits anytime soon? Um, yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think statewide, four fish would be just fine and dandy. Um, what I don't like is slot limits, personally. You know, I've fished every single destination for walleyes in the entire Midwest, and I can't say all of Canada, but all the best lakes don't have slot limits on them. They have a reduced limit if that's how they want to manage. But um, I've studied all that stuff, and I'll be the first one to say it. You know, all fish management happens with just a total take of fish from the system. And when it's spread out through different year classes, that's when you see healthy, you know, a pyramid um, approach where you have less big fish, the most small fish. People generally take the eater size ones themselves. They generally release 25 inches, but hey, if like 5% of people want to keep their four 25 inchers, that's fine. They're an outlier. And what it creates is just a general health of the fishery. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to four. The number of times I've caught a six fish limit in Minnesota in my entire life, professional walleye angler, I think I can count on two hands. I mean, I always catch my limit on the good lakes, leech, you know, Malax when you could Lake of the woods. Mm -hmm. Um, most, most people aren't going to hit that six fish limit. Yeah. You know, that's what the DNR, that's the argument because I've talked to the fisheries chief about this several times and I say, just drop it to four. And he goes, we can drop it, but there are so few anglers in the state that will go out and catch six of them that it's not really ultimately going to change anything. And to your point about the, the size limit and, you know, like for a while there, Malax, you could only keep like at 18 to 20 or something. Well, then everybody's taking that year class out. All of a sudden you remove a year class. You still have all the big fish. You remove that next year class. You still have all the big fish. Now the balance isn't, isn't, uh, where it needs to be. Those big fish eat the little ones. And now it's just like, it just on the whole ecosystem is unbalanced then. Yeah. If anyone wants to really learn about that, cause I realized back in my carpentry days, you know, a lot of people, um, the Indians messed up Lake Malax netting it. Okay, is that truth or not? I need to study this myself. Here's the truth of the matter. Every single walleye, by the time it can lay an egg and it's sexually mature, a female, like three years old, whatever age it is, um, it is simply just part of a biomass of eggs that happen in a lake, and that is your potential for spawn. It doesn't matter what size a walleye is, and genetics have nothing to do with anything ever. Your, your size of your walleye, your average size of walleye, is going to be strictly... Um, it's going to be a factor of how much forage there is and what are the overall water temps of the lake? What is it? What, what, how long can a walleye live? That's when you'll see 30, 31 inches. That's it. That's it. Those are the only factors. And I would have that conversation with any DNR guy. It's all the sense in the world. So any of those little slots or slivers like they have on the lax, the two inch sliver, um, you know, I, I, I'm obviously very opinionated about it, but if you have the opportunity to keep one over 20 inches, do it. Keep a 23-inch or a 24-inch if you want. That's a nice amount of meat. You know, if it's a four-fish limit, do that. That's your right, and I, I say you should do it. Here's another thing on this, and I don't mean to take us away from the, the uh, questions, Natalie, but a lot of Minnesota waters that are stocked with walleyes aren't waters that reproduce on their own. That's the reality. Very rarely do some of those stocked fish, they go through the cycle, they, you know, they drop their eggs, but the eggs don't make it. And so there's this argument, well, you got to keep the eaters and put the, you know, the ones that lay the eggs back. Okay. Are you, let's, I'm going to take Lake Minnetonka right in our backyard here. Almost all those fish are stocked fish. If you keep one 23 incher to feed your family or take four 16 inches out of there, what's doing the most harm to the lake? Because that 24 incher that everyone thinks that's the that's the one we gotta let go because it's gonna replace the the lake. It it's not actually the case. Exactly. You know, and so sometimes I look at it and I say, hmm, taking a bunch of those 14 to 17 inches, 
uh, and putting a couple of the bigger ones back is actually maybe in this exact instance, and it's every lake is different, but if you know your lake and you know how the, the ecosystem works, taking a larger one might actually be better than taking several smaller ones. Yeah, Minnetonka is small enough where, you know, the number one reason to release a fish like that on a lake that size or smaller or whatever is just simply to give somebody else the opportunity to catch it when it's bigger. Mm -hmm. But you don't ever need to add in any type of reproduction conversation to that. I release them all the time, obviously. Yeah. And that's for Natalie when she starts doing <laughs> nighttime Thanks, walleye fishing to catch that fish. When you finally convince her to go yeah. after Once the she walleye. catches her 50-inch muskie and she, <laughs> yeah. she's like, okay, I need to try exactly. something else that's hard, you know, then she's going to catch that 28-incher. So, um, yeah, like that's that's your opportunity to do that. It's an awesome thing to do. It's what we all do. It is. But if you don't ever mix up those conversations, that's your reason to let a bigger fish go. And it's, yeah, it's really great information for people listening and a good conversation to have. So... We love these listener questions, so thanks, uh, thanks, Michael, for sending that one in. Um, I got one last one. I'm going to show. I'm going to throw your way, which is a good segue as we just have a few minutes left in the show. So Ryan Safransky asked, "How do I get a boat ride in the fancy Ranger <laughs> and stick some Tonka walleyes with Johnny Boy?" So for people that would like to someday maybe have a chance of fishing with you, or just how do people connect with you? How did we follow you on social media? All that stuff. What's the best way to contact? His you? name is Ryan. Yes. All right. I can't. I can't uh, suggest to drink all the grain belt you can every day. But there's a wonderful giveaway going on right now with a Minnesota company, Grain Belt. They're actually my newest sponsor this year, so take this however it's worth. But the second place prize is a guided fishing trip with me, and like a whole bunch of Sims clothing and stuff. So that's one way you can do it. Uh, I was at a bar. Is the first place prize the boat? Yeah. 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 So there's 10 mm -hmm. walleye caps. And if you have one of those 10, do not throw those caps where you need to look. They're going to say 51 pound muskie, 30 pound catfish. Mm -hmm. But if you see one of those walleyes, you're one in 10 winners. And then there's going to be a party at Shell's Brewing in New Ulm. And then one of those 10 winners wins the boat. And the second place or the first loser has to go fishing with me. So that would be a good way to do it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And then you were posting about this uh, new video that you've been a part of that's going up on YouTube. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, thank you. So uh, my jump into YouTube, I've had people ask me, why can't you do it? And it's like, do you know how much time that takes? I mean, oh my gosh, I could never have the time to do YouTube. And uh, there's so many variables. But we filmed the first tournament this year at Spring Valley. And I had this awesome calming sensation. We worked with a couple of great shooters that I, I told them right away, like, this is how you can help me. I don't need added stress, but this is what you need to do. And we came out with our first episode. It's called Tour Level Gold, and it's free to watch on YouTube. And it tells the stories and shows the emotions and the excitement and the drama and the competition and everything that the National Wildlife Tour has to offer. And I will be honest, we, we are fans of the... Um, the Netflix series, Full Swing. But the beauty of the show is there's a narrator. His name is Brett Carlson. Mm. And he adds such a cool piece to it where you got my partner, Dwayne Jelm, who would never tell you how good of a wall angler he is. But when Brett starts talking about this guy, like I get goosebumps listening to it because like, that's my boy. That is completely mm -hmm. true. That guy's a hammer. So uh, our second episode, the first one uh, highlighted prefish, and the second one's coming out this Friday. And that'll be day one and two of the tournament. That's awesome. And, you know, obviously we talked about you've got this passion for angling, for competing, for guiding, but I know you care so much too about, you know, educating others and giving it back and sharing, you know, all the knowledge that you have. And it sounds like that's another great way, a great avenue that people can learn from you. So yeah. I look forward to that. I'll do one more. Uh, Natalie, I got, <laughs> do I have time for one allowed. more? You're okay. Allowed. All right. Top walleye fisheries in the Midwest and the country. If you had to maybe rank like the top five people that just are thinking, all right, you know, they fish their local lake, but they want to make this dream walleye fishing trip somewhere. What are some of the best places right now? Um, any of the Great Lakes right now are record numbers of walleyes. And that goes in, you know, with that, a, a lot of the Dakota lakes also are really trending up. And all that's based on high water. But the Great Lakes are as good as they can get right now. So if you want to go to a place and have a lot of fun, Green Bay is like my number one. Lake Erie is so easy to catch walleyes right now. You can go there and yes, you're going to have to troll, but you want to catch multiple 28 inchers, uh, record number of walleyes in Lake Erie right now. Um, I've only fished Saginaw Bay once, a little more manageable size of a great lake area. Uh, that's a great destination, but I mean, my heart's in Minnesota. Leech Lake is my favorite lake, you know, in Minnesota. 
it's also a crazy number of walleyes, smallmouth. It's the best musky fishery in the state right now. All natural, everything. Um, so that leech, that's so Green Bay, Erie, leech, Devil's Lake, one of my all-time favorites. And I would suggest Lake Oahe right now, but that is super advanced class. And they literally have the biggest walleyes in the country going right now, but there's not a ton of them. Um, but if you have gone to all those other places and you want to go catch like a f- summertime 13, 14 pounder, Lake Oahe. How about Sakakawea? Have you fished it? Oh, I'm sorry. Sakakawea is <laughs> like third or something. Sakakawea is crazy with it fish right now, too. It is amazing. Yeah. I know. It's go everywhere. Go, yeah. You can't go job. walleye fishing. Quit your job. Go walleye yeah. fishing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a pretty good way to leave it. <laughs> um, but seriously, thank you so much. This was just awesome having you on. Great information. I know we're all just eager and inspired to get out there, and we appreciate your time. And Wish you the best of luck in, you know, the next leg of the tour and the rest of the season. Yeah, we'll be cheering you on, John. Thank you. Yep, and good luck to all of the anglers hitting the water for Minnesota's fishing opener this season. It's going to be a great season on the water. We hope that you have enough for a fish fry and a big one for one of the youngsters in your boat this year, too. Maybe it's your mom. Yeah, Mm -hmm. bring your mom along. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) 